0: The Associate Artistic Director of the Drama League in New York City. Welcome to Talking Direction, the behind-the-scenes podcast going deep into the world of theater, film, television, and online content to celebrate directors. Those visionary artists at the center of plays, musicals, movies, and TV shows enjoyed around the world. Each week, we welcome acclaimed guests to explore imagination, risk-taking, and craft as well as looking at the past, present, and future of the creative industries. Don't forget to like, subscribe, wherever you find your podcast. We're available on all platforms or by visiting dramaleague.org. Thanks for listening and for talking direction.
1: Hi, I'm Danny Sharon. I've been a theater director for 15 years. Something that I constantly find myself wrestling with is my relationship to money. It's something that I've had to spend a lot of time and energy navigating. This was especially true in the beginning stages of my career, but as I've gotten older, I found that this relationship hasn't really gone away, it's just evolved. But there's one underlying issue that has been true for me since the start. So few people have ever spoken frankly to me about the financial hardships of pursuing a career in the theater, even less through the lens of a director. In March of last year, when the pandemic forced the doors of theaters across the world to close, and I, along with many others, lost my job, I couldn't help but spend a great deal of time thinking about the complicated relationship that all of us in the theater community have with money. And for the sake of the future of this field, how important it would be to try to find a way to make financial conversations more transparent and less taboo moving forward. This has been a time of immense difficulty and uncertainty but I thought that if people were willing to be open about their struggles, we might just have a chance to level the playing field and find a more inclusive and equitable way forward. So, with a deep understanding of how difficult it might be to actually have honest conversations about this pesky little devil called money, I decided to pick up the phone and call some of my friends and colleagues in the industry to see if I could get some answers. This second episode is a continuation of these conversations. Let's jump back into my conversation with Jacob Padron. We have to remember all paths aren't the same. Sometimes it's not about obtaining the income, but maintaining it. What are those obstacles?
2: Oh, that's a great question. I think that there were, I think there were a number of obstacles, I think, to be honest. I mean, I think that, you know, being um, Latino, being queer, being um not of that community I mean I think going into Ashland Oregon while it's a really vibrant community and uh, uh, you know it has so much to offer, you know it's still a, a rural place you know it's still in Southern Oregon and and given that that was sort of the immediate next chapter after leaving graduate school, I felt like I had to really prepare myself for um, you know feelings of isolation, feelings of, uh, Im- you know, the imposter syndrome is a real thing. I was, you know, I was 27 at the time. And now I'm surrounded by colleagues who have been in the business, you know, 20, 30 years. Uh, so, so there were lots of challenges. Um, and, and honestly, the biggest challenge was just believing in myself, believing that I deserve to have a seat at the table, um, be- believing that I could bring value to this company and have real impact. Uh, and so that was probably the, the you know the hardest piece, and and of course you know just being on your own, being able to pay your bills, being able to make those loan payments. Uh, I I saw the way in which my uh, you know other you know other aspiring producers were trying to sort of make their way and cobble together you know jobs specifically in New York City so that way they could uh, you know survive. So I, it was never lost on me how lucky I was to have a job right after finishing my graduate studies. Uh, but I got to tell you, man, oh man, it was. It, I was there for four years, and it was tough. It really was. I mean, I think I felt incredibly isolated, um, given as I said, given that I was in a small community, and uh, and I think just given my experience and my age. And so I have to just thank my lucky stars that Bill Roush gave me a shot. And saw something in me that I wasn't able to even see in myself, and really gave me a seat at the table, where I could bring my ideas, my vision, my leadership, and so much of how I now am showing up for Longworth Theater is largely shaped by my experiences at Oregon Shakespeare Festival. So I'm incredibly grateful. But yeah, there were there were I would say that was sort of the biggest challenge was, um, you know, just not being a student and believing in myself again.
1: It is amazing how how much we can
2: get in our own way (laughs) oh for sure for sure like yeah and i don't know that i think that the field is evolving but i think that you know uh ageism in addition to all the other isms and the principal ism that we're working through right now is racism we have to continue to do that work uh but ageism uh is alive and well in the american theater i think that the way in which we um defer to folks who have you know been in the business or have kind of earned their stripes by um, the number of credits they have on their resume or the number of years that they've been of service to an institution uh you know i didn't have that i i had had my experience at baltimore center stage i had you know three years at yale and and working for yale repertory theater as a as, as a student but uh you know my my experience was limited And so that's why I feel really grateful to Bill, because he was able to just make that space for me as I said, for me to try to make an impact and and for and for folks to, you know, as a twenty seven year old that I could still um that I still had a, a point of view uh and that I had still navigated the world. I think as I said, as a as a Latino, as a gay person, that could illuminate things at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And and it was like it was like laying, you know, laying the foundation, because then from OSF I was able to then uh, go on to Steppenwolf, and then from Steppenwolf the Public Theater, and every experience sort of drew on the next experience.
1: Yeah. Did you? I'm. You know, as you got out of school and, and being a being a producer or being an art, you know, a, an aspiring artistic director, there is some more stability in terms of the kinds of jobs you have, as opposed to being an actor, or being a director, and just sort of like being freelance essentially. Um, as you got out of school and you were sort of like pers- watching your friends who were actors and who were directors who were free- trying to make do the freelance life, um, what did you, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. Did you see those people struggling financially with that or, and otherwise, like what was your perspective as someone who was like fortunate enough to actually be have a job at an institution what was your experience then engaging with the people you knew who were f- trying to be freelance artists in some capacity?
2: I think it was and continues to be really difficult, the way in which we see the um, financial disparity across our industry. Um, I think that the gig economy is really, really tough. And so I, I never took for granted that I did have the stability of, uh, of an administrative job and uh, and it was a path that I that I did make for myself. It was a decision that I made for myself because I'm also a director, and that's a piece that a lot of folks maybe don't always know about me. And I knew, that, yeah. And it was a thing that I didn't I didn't I didn't want for myself. So I, in terms of being, I think for some folks they have the propensity and the tenacity and just the the will uh, to be. Uh, you know to, to to be an independent freelance artist and man i just I so admire that and I just i i knew that it it, it, it wasn't for me um, specifically because of the financial obligations that I had um, to myself and also to my family so I had to find uh, I had to find uh, a job that was a, a bit more typical in terms of monday through friday you know nine to five but uh, as you know, Danny, when you work in the theater, uh, it's very often that you are working way more than forty hours, and that you're often at the theater, you know, very late at night. Uh, and so, I it was it was it was difficult to see. I think my friend struggle. And what I tried to do, given that I was inside an institution, was I tried to find opportunities to put money in the pockets of artists. I tried to do as much as I could to open the doors. To those who maybe didn't have the kind of opportunity that I had, because I think uh, we're all gatekeepers, you know, wherever we sit within the with, within the ecosystem of the American theater, and we all can create opportunities, I think, uh, and, and and so that's the thing that I tried to do from the position that I was in. Uh, I was really lucky that uh, as a part of my job as associate producer at, at OSF, that I uh, was was really involved in the casting process. So I made sure that I reached out to my community and said, Hey, we're going to be in New York, come in. Let's, you know, would you be interested in a a six month contract at OSF or a a nine month contract? Uh, So, and, and now as an artistic director, you know, that's again, the the trying to open doors um, and trying to shatter some glass um, is, is so, so yeah, I, I did see the struggle and I tried to do all that I could from again, from the position that I was in of leadership to try to, disrupt that and to try to support those artists so that way they had a leg up.
1: I also asked Gabriel Stelian-Shanks about the difference between success and financial stability.
3: On the one hand, there's the thing that we were discussing before, which is like, you have to pay your dues and struggle and do, you know, all of those things that you're told when you're in your 20s. And then there's like the reality of what it is once you become successful, whatever that actually means. And the thing, I think that's where like my big, I don't even want to call it an aha moment. It was more like a, like a moment of shock for me was when I realized what the realities for people who I deem as successful were actually like. When I was, t- you know, when I would speak to professional directors who were directing on Broadway and in other places, and realizing um, how hard they had to work to just make a living during the year, to make enough at the end of the year to support themselves, um, and and those two things are separate. I almost feel like I could, and maybe it's just because of the way that I was raised that, like, I could forgive the like paying your dues part of it, if like on the when you got, you know, on the on the other side of that tunnel there was like a real light but that light is just really dim to me at the moment. It really just seemed much dimmer than I, than I imagined it would, it would have been when I was, you know, in my early twenties, if that makes any sense to you.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we're, you know, we're living in a world where a lot of this is not only hidden from directors, but then once it's revealed, you just realize the amount of work that it's going to take is, is going to do a couple of things. It's, it's not sustainable in terms of your having a life and it's not sustainable in terms of keeping a high level of artistry. And so, you know, if you, you know, if you averaged, and I don't think there are many directors doing this, but let's just pick, you know, if you're making $10,000 per show and, you know, the work it takes to do a show is, you know, how many of those can you do in a 12 month period? You know, um, I think a lot of people, um, if they do four, they're considered deeply successful. Right. You know? um, And so congratulations, you've made $40,000 before taxes. Um, And so when you start trying to think about supporting a family of four, um, you know, it becomes untenable. And I think that's why we're really seeing an evolution in directing to be uh, a set of skills that are used in a lot of different disciplines and industries, and a lot of directors doing more than one thing. What we used to call side hustles, but I now think is more of a, um, I don't know, the ecology of being a director, which is directing um, plays is one piece of a number of things you do to, to derive income, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. because, because that's really the only way you can support a directing career is if you have additional income streams from other things you do on top of your full-time job.
3: Right.
1: Colette Robert holds this advice close to the heart.
5: One thing I remember I was assisting a Liesl Tommy, uh, the amazing Liesl Tommy on, um, a show with the public. This was in 2008. And at the time, you know, she was that there was a show called the good Negro. Um, I saw that show. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, I love that show so much. Um, But that was her first sort of big New York show. And I remember asking her, like right before a preview was supposed to start, I was like, oh, do you think you'll work in New York more um, after this show, after your sort of New York debut? And she said, I don't think I can afford to only work in New York. And she really broke down, you know, how much, um, you know, directing. Off Broadway at the time it was around, you know, in the six to seven thousand dollar per show range. Um, and she's like, if you get lucky and you direct at, you know, the public in New York Theater Workshop and Playwrights and one other off Broadway theater all in one season, that's just twenty-eight thousand dollars. And it's it would be really lucky to to get four New York shows in one season. And I had just never, and, but, you know, compared to working at a town on a, on a Lort show where you can make eighteen nineteen twenty thousand $20,000. Um, and I just didn't, I thought at the time that like New York was sort of the goal and to, to know that even when you get there, you can't afford to only work there because you don't make enough money to pay your New York rent. Um, would have been good to know. Um, when I was younger or just sort of when I just moved to New York at 21.
1: So if finally getting your big New York premiere isn't enough, how many shows do you need to direct in a year to live a comfortable life? Let's check in with Lee Silverman.
6: Yeah. So I basically, I mean, this is sort of loose, loosely um, articulated, but I would say I had to do five shows a year to afford my life in New York. Um, Now, if I was working on, a show on Broadway, or I had, I was working on a show at a Lord A or A theater where the salaries were higher, um, I could do fewer shows in a year. But in general, um, to do work um, frequently that took three to seven to nine years to develop, mostly in development facilities and places where you work for free or for very little money um, that when you finally get to premiere that show at the public theater or new york theater workshop or you know up the, the, the theater of your dreams that you would want to work at um, you're going to get paid like $7,000 or $8,000 and then 10% will go to your agent and two and a half goes to the union and then you pay taxes and so the show that you've worked on for Let's let's like round down. Right. Let's say three years. Let's say you worked on it three years, which is quick in the theater for development. So let's say you worked on it for three years. You did, let's say, five readings of it, four readings of it. Let's say you did two 29 hour workshops. You probably cleared. Less than $500 for all of that work, for all of those coffees that you had with the writer, the readings you did in your apartment, all of that for those previous three years. And now you're going to work for seven weeks at your dream theater, Theater X, and you're going to do four weeks of rehearsal and three weeks of previews in which you work six days a week um, you work just in the building, um, eight hours a day, 10 hours a day. You have design meetings when you go into tech, when you go into previews, when you're there after getting notes from the artistic director, doing notes with your design team, waking up early, reading rewrites, coming in, changing things, having previews for all of that time you're clearing. Let's say you were making $8,000, which is pretty standard at, at, Theater X, Um, and you know you're going to walk away from all of that, all of that time with like a little over six thousand dollars, which actually makes the amount of time that you worked on that show you're making less than minimum wage um, the entire time. Forget the three years prior. Um, and of course, you're not factoring into that the money you spend on your transportation, the pizza you bought for the crew, um, you know, the ways that you built morale inside your company, your the way that you pull people together, the things that directors do writing cards to people, the time that you spend to say nothing of if you have a child, your child care, um, you know, buying people um, a drink after to go over notes to keep keep morale high, you know, whatever it is, coffee in the morning with the writer so that you can talk about things before you walk into rehearsal. So really, you're operating constantly at a deficit. <laughs> you're spending, you're, you're paying out to do the job. Um, and that's what I mean by unsustainable. Sahim said this.
7: And no one tells you that. No one talks about how really challenging it is to, actually not even challenging, how impossible it is to only direct as a freelance director in, in the not-for-profit world, I'm sure um, the the folks who've had commercial success and long-running shows on Broadway or, or internationally can sing a different tune because that is a level of income that is vastly different from working as a freelance uh, off and off off Broadway. But definitely, there is no way to sustain yourself financially and live in New York only working. Um, as a, as a director, I'm, and you know, folks go about a different way. Some folks teach, um, um, as well, to supplement their income. Um, some folks have their own companies, and so they're able to um, have um, like a, a financial structure that um, pays a salary. That's part of you know the fundraising and the um, 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 resource gathering that they do as part of keeping a company afloat. So there are different ways, but I, I can say from my experience, there is no way to be a freelance off-Broadway director alone and survive.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that I wish somebody had said to me. To be honest, like I under, I always like I knew it would be hard starting out. I knew that it would be hard for ten years. Like I understood I would be waiting tables or doing whatever it was that I had to do. But what what I wish someone would have said to me was, once you start getting hired and you actually start working, you're still not going to be making enough money. Like that was never said to me. <laughs> Um, and I, and I had to learn it like when it happened, like it was the moment when you and I were both at Williamstown that summer, um, when you were doing Harrison's play. And that was like my first, you know, professional production, directing production. I still even going into it was, was, um, under the very wrong impression about what my life was going to be after that, that play, um, And and like there was a a real moment of reckoning after it, which I had, frankly, nothing to do with whether or not that play succeeded or failed, but just had to do with like me thinking like, oh, I never have to work in a restaurant again. Like I had told that to myself and it wasn't wasn't the truth. You know, Saheem Ali added this.
7: Yeah, I wonder at what point that becomes. Yeah, I wonder. I, I, I feel like. Yeah, if we were to really think about, like, is it in our training program? Should we be talking about those realities? Like, what do they risk by talking about that? I mean, seriously, what do they risk? You know, is it is it that that, that are they uh, programs afraid that if you talk about that, people are going to leave the program, and, and that has financial implications? Yeah, it's it's a it's 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 an important question. Certainly, in the moments where I have um um either taught guest taught or guest directed at programs um i have spoken very freely about just the challenge that it is but i've also spoken about the passion that you need to to find your voice and to um um seek fellow collaborators and to um engage with material and with uh fellow storytellers who you want to spend your time on this planet um actually you know engaging with that it's actually that vital you know um, So I, I, yeah, it's, it's an important and interesting question about when and who should take the responsibility of being like, listen, it is going to be financially tough to, to survive.
1: It's important to note that not everyone is on this journey alone. Financially. Some people are blessed with familial support to help ease their burdens. I admitted my own feelings about this to David Cromer. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, like the, the, Thing to say though, is that I also don't have family money. Like I did not come here with like a, a, you know, a, a bag full of cash that I, yeah. that I could help. So I was also constantly having to work in order to support myself. And I remember, and I'm curious to know if you had this experience too, but I remember as I started to get older and progress professionally, the, I remember seeing the people who did have that sort of support, which is there's nothing wrong with that. Like, please, I would have, I would have <laughs> yeah, had yeah. that support, but that they would, they were moving along faster. Like, they were able to accelerate faster than a lot of the people that I knew who didn't have that. Um, and I remember just feeling so envious of the the fact that they didn't have to go wait tables at night, and I was waiting yeah. tables five times a week or whatever it was. Yeah.
8: You know? It is none of those, it is no one's fault that they possessed that. Um, that they possessed that, uh, that um, uh, advantage. That, that, that um, you know, the children of working adult actors who, you know, uh, uh, have, ha- have access to the concept of success that if you were the only person in your family who'd ever gone into this profession, and were living in another city, did not have that's no one's fault that that's the case. But yes, it's very, it's very, very, very frustrating. The um uh uh well, I mean, and that's the that's all the envy, all the all the part of it for young artists of like the and and old artists. <laughs> The envy, which I'm working on, the envy and the rage, you know. Um, But uh, I mean, I still want to. I still want to. I was also thinking. I think a lot about. I did take the vow of poverty to a certain extent, so I might have been projecting onto my students uh, that I I would be offered more responsibility at my office job because they liked me. Not because I was doing a good job, but because I thought that maybe they thought I seemed nice. Um, I was offered more opportunity, which would have been more money, which would have been a 401k and maybe some insurance, but I wouldn't take it because I couldn't risk it eating into time. Now, I was, I mean, looking back, you you can't, luckily, you can't remember pain. (laughs) You know what I mean? Luckily, you can only intellectually remember pain. I can't remember the absolute horror of being so broke that you sometimes you'd come home from work or from your shitty job or from school or from rehearsal and you would turn on the light and the light didn't come on because they had turned off your electricity (laughs) because you had simply not paid it and you're like well I just hope it isn't today (laughs) that they turn it off and then one day it is um uh it's awful it's awful I hate and I, when I talk to people who are in that position, it's, they're, they're, it's, it's terrifying. And it's, you know, it's like, I don't, but you know, a lot of people, a lot of people lent me money. You know what I mean? Uh, and so I, you try, yeah, you like, remember to be generous. <laughs> that's all, that's all i say. <laughs> because people were generous to you, you know?
1: The common source of supplemental income among artists seems to be teaching. Maybe that's the key to balancing the financial scale towards stability. Lee had this to say.:
6: Sure. so I taught at Princeton. Um, I um, taught an acting class at Princeton. I taught a bunch at the O'Neill. I used to teach at primary stages. Um, i it it really I love teaching really it um it came out of my desire to, to, mentor. And my, um, I, I think I have this, um, I think it actually is because I'm an only child that I have this feeling of like, nobody was there before me and I need to, like, I need people around me. And like, so I have like a very deep desire to, um, uh, a mentor, actually more, more than teach. And it's been a very big part of my life. And I also just fundamentally, um, feel that like, I don't know, it's our responsibility to, um, (laughs) bring in not only the next generation, but the generation behind them and behind them. And that it's like really important to be, um, uh, I don't know, opening the door wider than it was for you or, or leaving the door open and wider than, than you found it. And um, that's just been a very big part of my life. So I think that's really why I got into teaching. Um, I teach now at Columbia um, a class that I really love. I've taught directing there and I took over for Anne Bogart one year when she was on sabbatical for her um, grad directors. But I teach this class that I am so I'm in love with this class. And um, it's a fundamentals of directing, directing class but I teach it to first year grad playwrights and dramaturgs. And what's great about teaching directing to playwrights and dramaturgs is first of all, I love playwrights. My whole life is about collaboration with playwrights. So to be able to talk to them about directing is, um, is really dreamy for me. Um, also it's because they're not really directors or they're not directors first. I don't have to teach them the boring shit like, um, you know, how to, ground plan. And like, where do you put the kitchen sink or whatever? Like I get to miss all that stuff. And instead we get to just talk about collaboration and it's really a sneaky collaboration class in the sense that I really believe that if writers and dramaturgs, producers, if they understand what it's like to be inside of a director's shoes, they will know better how to talk to directors and how to be a better collaborator. And I feel like I learned that because I was in my last couple of years as a um, directing major, I was also a, a playwright. I was a grad playwright. And I learned more about how to direct by being a playwright. I learned more about how to talk to playwrights by being a playwright, because I understood the kind of, and had was filled with a kind of awe for writers who could sit down and face the blank page, talk about their writing. And I learned about um, story and structure, character, revelation. I mean, I learned how to talk about the work. Um, from a writing point of view while I was a playwright. And I'm a better director because of that time that I spent being a playwright. And I am not a great writer. I mean, I've now had the extraordinary great good fortune and honor of working with incredible writers, and I am not a great writer. But I do feel like I understand what great writing is, and I know how to talk about it. And, you know, once I graduated and came to New York, I feel like, not only did I have the skills, but I had the empathy because I had been inside of it and, um, and had struggled with it, the process and knew what it was like and knew what it was like to share work and be met with silence. And so when, when I sit down with writers and, you know, there's that, that moment where someone shared something with you, I understand that vulnerability and, also, I, I learned how to talk about new work and how to shape new work in a way that I, you know, maybe I would have gotten there ultimately, but certainly being in the shoes of a writer gave me a real insight. And so that's what I try and bring to the classes that I teach.
1: Colette said this.
5: Yeah, I have been. Um, I, well, I, I still teach. Um, I teach a class at, um, I've been teaching a class at Hunter College for a few years. Um, in the humanities department. And then this year, I started teaching a class at um, NYU in the dramatic writing program. Um, So I've been doing that. And then I have also um, directed one, and I'm working on my second and third virtual productions with uh, universities. It's crazy. It's such a weird... sometimes it feels completely normal when you're just like working on a scene and like talking about like character motivations um and then you're in a production meeting and talking about like dropping off clothes at like apartments in queens and harlem and brooklyn because no one can come on campus um that is very strange hey correct
1: as you are currently teaching these students are you going to are you noticing them having any of these conversations about their financial realities? And, and are you thinking about trying to prepare them at all as their educator?
5: That's a great question. I I should be, I should uh, talk to them about it. I think we're all so much like in the sort of second to second thinking about how to like, how are we going to do this show? Um, that, and and I, I should also say that the students that, that I teach at NYU are freshmen, so I don't think they're really thinking about it. They, um, they finished their senior year of high school in the beginnings of a pandemic and missed graduations and proms and everything. And they're starting their first year of college in a similar sort of some of them are still at home um, with their families and, um, a few are in the dorms. I don't think, I think they're just sort of struggling over learning, um, over zoom. Um, and then the MFA students are, we're sim- they are similarly just struggling to, I mean, they're probably thinking about financial stuff, um, sort of privately, but we haven't discussed it. Um, which actually now to me seems very surprising.
4: Gabriel thought this well but you think about like the most successful directors in our field you know I mean Michael Mayer also directs television you know a a bunch of uh, every every director on Broadway teaches or coaches or does something additional in their work Mm -hmm. um and it and it it speaks to the fact that what we have presented as a definition of success is really a model for other industries. This idea of the nine to five, 40 hours a week job at one employer is not an artistic reality in America for someone who wants to direct theater. You are going to have to work in multiple industries with overlapping priorities. You're going to have to multitask at a level most um, workers in this country cannot even begin to think about. Um, and that's what it's going to take to survive, you know, um, thriving is nearly impossible. We know this from the SDC numbers, you know, we know there are only about, you know, 25 people who regularly direct on Broadway in the entire country, you know? And so, you know, for the other two, three, four thousand people who define themselves as directors, um, what success looks like, what that stability you're talking about, that dream of having a family and being able to go home and see them occasionally—you <laughs> um, know—it's—it's it's really tricky. It's—it's—it's it's, it's not going to be something you can do merely through your directing. David had this to say:
8: I must have started teaching in about. 1993 or so. And I I was teaching at Columbia College where I taught I was adjunct faculty. You know, I never got a degree. So I was never, ever able. I taught there for 15 years, but they were never able to hire me full time. So it was always, it was still, it was still very little money. And if all your classes didn't go, you were screwed, you know? Um, So I, the vow of poverty lasted a long time. I mean, I was, I was, I, you know, I was in, in in the aughts. I was directing plays where I didn't have any money. I would have to walk to rehearsal, and and I had a, a a cast who could all eat and I couldn't, you know. And I would just somehow handle my finances so badly that you know I was I was the director and and I'd had some success and I was, you know, but I I, I had to walk to and from rehearsal. I couldn't afford to get on the train.
1: So did did that ever like? Did you ever have to go back to teaching or, uh, or some other like secondary form of income after no, that I've,
8: point? But I've been bro- I was broke again after the MacArthur because uh, the Macar the, the I got a you know I mean I got I you know sorry that was presumptuous in 2010 those those crazy people the MacArthur I got a MacArthur found a i got a, a fellowship i got the, the half a million bucks and they don't just hand you a half a million bucks you you make it over a year and i lived on it and my my decision was i wasn't made, you know i had a couple things running i had some shows but i wasn't getting big paying jobs but i just they say to you're supposed to do what you want to do so i went to chicago and i directed rent and i you know what i mean i spent and i lived on the money and and um and there was a period, I mean, br- broke is an exaggeration, but I then also had finally a little bit of a, I went into overload and I decided not to work for a year. I decided to stop. I was very burned out and I decided to stop taking jobs. So the combination of that, living on it, having spent a lot of it on projects um, uh, uh, and then suddenly not having uh, gigs again, I, 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 I was started to where I started to run out of money, which had I been uh, not uh, suffering from probably low grade anxiety, if my depression, if I was healthier mentally at that time, I would not have gotten myself in that situation. Uh, I've had those days behind me before, and then they weren't behind me again. That's sort of what I was when I was yeah, oh, blah, blah, blah. I, I, I it was a little broker after I got my grant. I know that sounded horribly elitist and whatever but but it's there's still hills and valleys all the way through and I don't mean to be cute about that there's still hills and valleys all the way through it's surprising simply because all jobs are three or four months long it's funny about that you know i mean i my, my tour the tour of the band's visit was out and that was i got money for that every week i was paid every week for the tour of the band's visit and i would go and check it out and, and And it's not Dear Evan Hansen in terms of, in terms of, you know, but you just go like, there's certain things that in our world that we thought were pretty for sure. And one of them is that Dear Evan Hansen was still going to be running. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's not, it's a relatively safe bet that Dear Evan Hansen was going to be fine. And for that to be, up and restaurants, close all the time. You know what I mean? I don't know if more restaurants are closing now than would anyway, but dear Evan Hansen, you know, um, the Hamilton. So it's Broadway, you know, Phantom. It's really, it's really crazy. Yeah. No, I've thought, I've thought the same thing about like, well, that was like, like your question earlier. I might have to think about something else. What would that be? You know, um, uh, Uh, I don't have any idea, you know?
1: Thanks to these brave artists for being so honest with me about their journeys. And thank you for listening. Tune in next week to the final part of this series. I asked the directors what they're doing to create a sustainable financial future for themselves and how we as a field can do our part to help artists move forward.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode of Talking Direction. Join us every week by subscribing while you're here. Also, let us know what you think. You can follow us and engage with us directly on all social media platforms with the handle at DramaLink. Talking Direction is a project of the DramaLink of New York, America's only not-for-profit, lifelong home for stage directors and the audiences who treasure their work on stage and films on television and across the internet. During the pandemic, we're providing essential services to help theater folk and their families who are suffering from economic and health struggles due to COVID-19. If you'd like to join us in this effort, visit Dramaleague.org and click donate or become a member. We'd love to have you a part of our Drama League family. Thank you for listening. Until next time.